Hello, and welcome to Living It Radio. I'm Kelly DiNardo, here with Amy Pierce Hayden. We are the authors of Living the Sutras, a guide to yoga wisdom beyond the mat. Through our book and this podcast, we aim to make the principles of yoga alive, active, accessible, and personal. On this podcast, we go deeper into the topics we address in the book by talking to compelling people who can help us live an inspired, connected, joyful life. Today we are joined by Kino McGregor, an international yoga teacher, author of three books, producer of six Ashtanga yoga DVDs, writer, blogger, world traveler, and co-founder of the Miami Life Center and Ohm Stars. In this interview, we talked to Kino about her journey with yoga, how yoga helps with her depressive tendencies, how to break habit patterns, and what it means to do the work. Kino, thank you so much for joining us. We're thrilled to have you on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great. So we're going to just dive right in. Tell us a little bit about how you came to yoga. Well, when I went into my very first yoga class, it was kind of by happenstance. I was 19 years old and I saw a bunch of people standing on their heads in the gym and I thought that looked pretty cool, but I didn't, <laughs> you know, I didn't have any notion of the depth of the spiritual aspect of the practice. But when I joined that very first class, that really, that's what really stuck with me more than anything was that there was a spiritual component, unlike anything that I'd experienced up until that moment in my life, this sort of connection between mind, body, and spirit. And a few years later, when I was kind of going through a dark period in my life, I can look back now and I can see that it was a period of depression. I was searching for a, t- a technique, a tool to live a more peaceful life. And it was from that, from that impetus, from that desire in my heart that I started to join a more traditional daily committed yoga practice. Up until then, I'd really only dabbled into the practice, you know, and so it was really this desire to live a more peaceful life that led me to dedicate myself to the practice of yoga. Are you an all or nothing person like that? Like, do you have to make a decision and say, all right, I'm doing this? Or can you kind of be in the middle space with disciplines? Oh, gosh. Well, I think in the beginning, I was definitely an all or nothing person. I was sort Mm -hmm. of, you know, 100% on or 100% off. And I've definitely softened in that way, uh, you know, since then. And I would say that the place where I am in my life right now is a a place of more of of in-betweens, a place of, uh, of, of waiting and seeing what wants to happen rather than trying to force or trying to kind of you know, manically create something. And it's, it's a different space. It's not natural for me. I I am more naturally inclined to kind of dive head on and give my all in, in kind of, you know, a hundred percent effort, but I'm, I'm, I guess the, the practice is working, you know, 20 years later, I'm a little softer around the edges. It takes 20 years. I, I know by my experience to, to, to be, for me anyway, to kind of become a little bit more modern and have the ability to be faithful and trusting. I actually just this morning saw your post on Instagram about something about you saying there's more, more, less answers and more questions and being able to sit in that space. And I think that's not only true for me, but I think people are finding that right now that we're having to do that a little bit more. Would you say that's true? 
Yeah, I, feel, I mean, it's definitely where I am. I feel that if I look back and I can think about moments of certainty, you know, and I think I was never more certain about how yoga should be done or maybe what life was all about than I was, you know, um, 20 years ago, 20 years ago. you know, mm -hmm. when I first started. And now I feel like, you know, even the things that I thought at one moment I was so sure about, I I've just watched things change and shift even within my own body, my own minds, my own community. I've seen things that I thought were, <clears throat> you know, totally aligned and meant to be completely fall apart. And I, I've seen so many things that were based in certainty just kind of dissolve into thin air. So I feel that right now, perhaps there is in one sense, a kind of, I mean, in, in my life, for sure, there's a, there's the sense of un, the unknown and being willing to, to let go of a need for certainty and to really just sit in this space of, well, of not knowing, of not having the safety of being told what to do or where it's going or what the answers are, to really just sit and embrace the not knowing space. And I find that extremely difficult, you know, and I, I think most people do. Unfortunately, I think this is one of the things that, that, that drives people to seek definite answers on things, you know, and, and, and to have definitive good and bad and right and wrong and this sort of binaryism that sort of sections our minds and our, our communities off into these polarities, which keeps us divided. And, and that division starts really within our own hearts, our own inability to embrace two seemingly oppositional truths within ourselves so that we, we don't accept our shadow sides. We want to be all good. We don't accept the down. We want to be all positive. So positivity, which is really, really useful for particularly with people that have low self-esteem or have negative self-talk or have sort of depressive tendencies like I do, it can be a little bit aggressive and almost like a defense to facing the vulnerability that's inside. And so, you know, the spiritual path is, is difficult and at the same time, utterly freeing and liberating. And, and it's those, and it's sort of truths like that to hold side by side that I find require a good deal of, of hard earned, you know, spiritual maturity that, that you don't get anywhere else other than putting in the work and the practice. I, I love that. And it leads perfectly into why we wanted to have you on, which was to talk about tapas, which has so much to do with discipline and pain and some of the things you're touching on right now. So tell us a little bit about what tapas means to you. So tapas in Sanskrit is traditionally understood to be those actions which are taken on from the perspective of discipline, those actions which when taken on with great effort will lead to purification of some type. And we can understand tapas as the acceptance of necessary suffering. And even that is kind of a, a contradiction in terms because the promise of the spiritual path is a way out of suffering. So then immediately right. we think, well, why are we, ha why is it sort of one of the basic tenets is that we've got to suffer? You know, so why aren't we talking about, you know, let's all just be happy and lie around and just, you know, be in balls of bliss and enjoy our happiness. And why, why, why is suffering such a, a key component in the spiritual path? Well, the, 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 the lesson there, the essence of kind of what's behind there is that whether or not, whether or not you're willing to admit it, life kind of in part of its contract inevitably contains some suffering. 
there will always be shifts and changes. There'll always be something you like, something you don't like. You know, we're born, we grow for a period of time, we reach some sort of crescendo, and then we start to age. And then, and then that in and of itself is change. And that in and of itself has the potential to bring up suffering. People that were here once that we loved dearly are no longer here with us anymore. There is loss in every home, in every human heart. So if the spiritual path is going to equip us to be happy and peaceful amidst the inevitable vicissitudes of life, those ups and downs, it has to be willing to, to sort of hit dead on the reality of suffering. So tapas in a very real and fundamental felt sense is the acknowledgement that suffering is present. And then it, and in that acknowledgement, it's the beginning of the tool and the teaching of the tool of how to respond with intelligence, with compassion, with wisdom to suffering when it has arisen. So this is something that I think uh, is often misunderstood about tapas, because it's not that we're in search of pain, but it's the understanding of, of how we respond to, to, to pains when they arise, what, whether that's physical, emotional, you know, psychological, spiritual, you know, however, however that pain manifests, our response to it and our ability to respond with intelligence, with compassion, with wisdom, well, that's tapas. You talk a lot in your book about uh, dropping negativity, and how do you do it? Like, what's Kino's way to drop negativity? Well, I think the first thing is to become cognizant that you are negative, right? Because I think many people don't even realize that they're negative, you know, or that they're we, caught in it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. And and we've got different streams of it. So we have self-directed negativity, which is something like a constant stream of self-denigrating thoughts that are often running in the subconscious mind. And we don't even realize that we harbor this negativity until it comes out in a casual statement or something like this. And, and until we can't be free of it until we've brought that up to the surface. So to, to recognize the degree of our self-directed negativity, well, then you have the potential to shift that. And then the same way when you see yourself complaining um, rehearsing old rehashed lines about, you know, why you're angry about something, why someone was really mean to you and why they were a tyrant and this sort of thing. And it's, it's taking your energy. As soon as you recognize that, there's probably a seed somewhere inside of that complaint, which has something really, really valuable to offer. But if you only go into the complaint, then it'll just perpetuate itself. So what I do when I find myself triggered, because, you know, what is the, the, the biggest, you know, negativity you can experience when facing the, the, the stimulus of the world is, is being angry, you know, being very upset, you know, angry, triggered, annoyed, leading into anxiety, panic, these sorts of things. When I find myself triggered, as soon as I realize that I'm triggered, I, I, I do my best to remove myself from the situation and just sit. Could be as little as five minutes. But then what I often find happens for me in that situation is that instead of me being annoyed because I dropped the glass on the floor, instead of me being annoyed because my husband's, you know, playing music really loudly in the other room, what I realize is, is oftentimes there's just uh, an energy that needs to be expressed in the body somehow, may or may not be related to those specific incidents, but it's, it's there and it's present. And if it's not given the time to just sort of run its course, then it goes back into repression and it builds and it gets directed towards other things. 
So for me, again, as soon as I notice uh, that I'm triggered in any way, that there's a physiological response manifested in the body as negativity, increased heart rate, you know, rapid breathing, I feel myself getting hot, I feel my, my thinking beginning to be incoherent, um, you know, I feel discomfort in the body, ickiness or eeriness on the skin, I will, I'll sit for a few minutes, you know, I, if I hear myself being uh, you know, disproportionately reactive to certain situations. And I know, I know I've got some unprocessed stuff. So it just a sit for, you know, can be as little as five minutes until that cycle of energy is kind of, you know, gone through. And that I find that extremely helpful. That doesn't mean that I'm not going to go outside and say, you know, would you please turn the music down? It's not, right. it's not going <laughs> to, you know, it's, it's not going to mean that now I'm just going to lie there and take every miserable situation, but it's going to, it's going to defuse the emotional bomb and get me really, really clear on what is the essence of what's going on. And then that, that, that I think is a really firm foundation for kind of, you know, intelligent, emotionally responsible dialogue. I like what you have said in the past about um, tapas and the difference between seeking out pain and accepting kind of this short term discomfort, which is a little bit about what you're talking about now. And my understanding is that the idea of tapas is that we can use this then to melt away bad habits or things that don't serve us. So would you agree with that? And and if so, what has your practice helped you kind of burn away? Well, absolutely. You know, habit patterns are really hard to break. And there's conventional neuroscience that says that by the time an individual is 35 years old, 95% of thinking is habituated. So 95% of what we do, who we think we are, is the habit patterns of the mind. And those are deeply ingrained and they're happening unconscious. 95%. We think about that's a staggering amount. We have 5% of the mind that's conscious and aware and 95% that's happening automatically without our conscious awareness. And this is where tapas comes in. Because when we think about it, it's not going to be fun to go in there and excavate those deeply seated habit patterns of the mind and challenge them and bring them up to the surface and then try to make some updates to the, to that deeply, you know, deeply held subconscious pattern of the mind. So this comes up in practice quite often. Here you are and you're trying to put your leg behind the head and you try and you try and you try and it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. And then you go and, you know, you, you consult experts, you ask teachers, you go to, you know, physical therapists and you start doing some deep process work on it. And then somewhere along the way, you understand that how you initiate movement in your hip is not going to lead you where you want to go. So in order to get into your body in a more efficient way, you'll have to reprogram how you initiate movement in your hip joint, not only in that one posture that you're trying to do, but it'll probably be evident in numerous situations throughout your life. So in this way, you'll need to employ discipline, you know, you have to think about it. Oh, when I'm walking, I'm doing that thing with my hip again. Gosh, I didn't realize it. Oh, look, when I get in and out of the car, I do that thing with my hip again. I squeeze my hip flexors unnecessarily. Oh, interesting. Oh, look, I'm standing in line in the grocery store Sorry. and my hip thing is going on. And it's just everywhere. You just have to constantly be like, okay, let's see if I can let that go. Try to do the new pattern. And then it's, you know, it's, it's persistent. It's exhausting. But then what I usually find is that 
there's a corollary, there's a corollary kind of behavioral pattern that every inefficient movement pattern is linked to. And that by changing in that action of, of, of being present and changing the way you inhabit the hip joint, then there's, there's some wisdom in there for that. And it's different for every person. So one person may realize, oh, you know, actually what I do is when I'm having the beginning of anxiety, then I squeeze that hip in that way. So that's my habituated response to anxiety and it's a coping mechanism. Wow. So if I don't do that with my hip anymore, I just have to be present to my anxiety. Wow. That's overwhelming. And to sit with that, that's tapas. You know, then you're, you're in the middle of your storm. You know, you're sitting there. It's, it, it's, you, it's a, it's sort of a voluntary immersion and kind of a, a dark night of the soul. And then you go to these dark places inside of yourself that the subconscious mind has developed all these little coping mechanisms to prevent you from ever really, you know, facing it. Speaking of hip things or things of that nature, has there ever been a period in your, because I know you have a very dedicated, I'm imagining daily practice of your Ashtanga, where you are in your Ashtanga practice. Have you had a time where by the force of an injury, physical or emotional, that you've had to change your discipline or it's changed without your choice? Well, one of the things that I really believe in is just getting on the mat every day. And I do, I have a sitting practice and I have a yoga practice and I believe in, I believe in getting on the mat every day. And that doesn't mean that I'm going to do all of the difficult poses and, 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 and sit with, you know, total immersion and oneness and all of that every day. But I believe in just putting myself on there um, and doing the work, whatever that work is. And I've definitely had periods of time where I've been injured and I've had to go through, you know, re-educating my hip joint, repatterning the way I do chaturanga, the way I, you know, breathe and my connection into various parts of the body. I've gone through periods where I was totally uninspired and it felt like I was just going through the motions. I've gone through periods where everything felt amazing and it just felt like I was making, you know, really, really deep, deep strides in the practice. And so I've sort of, I kind of feel like I've been through it all. The most important thing I think is consistency. Get on the mat every day for as little as five minutes. Sit on your meditation cushion every day for as little as five minutes. Five minutes is the minimum, you know, beyond less than five minutes. And it's like the mind hasn't settled at all. But within five minutes, you can reach at least enough change to make a qualitative difference in your day and in the type of thoughts that you think that day and in how you feel in your body and in the felt sense of presence in your body. And so what this means is that if you're injured, if you're caring for a sick parent, if you are sick yourself, or if you feel just very, very low energy, then you take the burden off of yourself. Oh, I need to do, you know, an hour of practice. No, you don't. You just need to do it every day. It's the same thing about like brushing your teeth. If you're tired, you, you know, brush your teeth. Maybe if you have electric toothbrush, you cut it off, you know, because it's, you're too tired to sit for the three minutes. But it's just about getting that consistency to keep the ritual of the practice every day and let that be enough. And sometimes the discipline in itself is being more moderate and doing less. Oh, yes, absolutely. You know, we have this attachment to uh, this kind of high level attachment to uh, it's not practice unless it's 90 minutes and I was fully sweaty and every joint was moved and it's not a true meditation unless I was there for an hour and I reached different states of samadhi but this is unrealistic and then we set up these kind of really really high stands pass or fail standards you know with ourselves of like it's all or nothing I'm gonna do it all I'm gonna do nothing or then we beat ourselves up because we we're only able to do sun salutations and then we carry around 
guilt for the rest of the day. And then, and then there is this element of discipline of the mind that kind of comes in and says, you know what? I'm just going to celebrate that I did get those five minutes. And then, and then that's, like you said, that's tapas too. Yeah. There's a connotation to it that it, it involves austerity or penance. Would you agree with that? I have a really common translation that we hear austerity, penance. But then if we go into, if we go into that a little bit, it's this notion of giving things up. So everything we think we are, myself included, is based in those habit patterns of the mind. What we think, what we crave, what we know as bliss, what we know as familiar is all rooted in the past. These 95% of our habit patterns have been imprinted in the mind at such a young age, before we were conscious, before we were cognizant. We're there like sponges, taking and receiving all of these habit patterns, these proclivities from our family, from our culture, from the world around us, without any conscious agreement to what's being imprinted in the mind. So here we are, the recipients of thousands of years of humanity in our genetics, in our culture, imprinted into the fabric of the mind. The word in Sanskrit for this is samskaras, larger patterns called vasanas. And then we identify with these. We think that that is us. So when we're given this, these sort of inclinations to do what you want, to trust what arises and these sorts of things, unless we get beyond the habit pattern of the mind, unless we're willing to give up everything that is familiar to us, to give up all of those habit patterns in the subconscious mind, which are drawing us towards, this is what I eat. This is what food is to me. This is what it feels like to be loved, to be known, to be valued. This is what beauty is. This is what intelligence is. This is what a leader looks like. Any of those things are all imprints in the pattern of the subconscious mind. Even more, our self-identity, these limiting thoughts that we have about ourselves, who we think we are, who in the deepest trenches of the subconscious mind, these are the things we have to give up. But in order to get there, in order to even understand what's programmed, we have to be willing to engage in small sacrifices. We have to disrupt the habit pattern that we're in to a degree to which these patterns can start to arise. So this is where yoga comes in and says, hey, you've got to practice six days a week. And yeah, you've got to do it as close to first thing in the morning as possible. These are trying to break the pattern of the mind. If not, what happens when you wake up in the morning? You wake up in the morning very quickly from the moment we get out of bed, we're thinking about the familiarities of our life, including all of our problems. Very quickly, if we're not on our mats and we're not meditating, we're reading the news, some new horror that is, you know, being broadcast on all of the major news media outlets is getting into our minds. We're becoming outraged. We're sharing things on social media, feeding our outrage. And this is all happening within the first hour that we wake up and all rooted in the past. Yoga comes in and says, Hey, give that up. This is tapas. This is you know, austerity. Instead of that, Get on your mat, start to breathe, try to put your leg behind your head, bring your attention back to your breath over and over and over again. And then you have the possibility to you know, be a new person, to be free of that, of those old habit patterns of the past and discover who you are fresh and new um, and present and be able to consciously choose. Well, that's a good thought. I want to keep that one. Consciously choose. Well, that's a good habit pattern that leads to good results in my life. I'd like to keep that one. You know, it's a, it's a big work. It's a yeah. Big, you, it's a big work. Yeah. You talk a lot about how it, it's the discipline to act differently, which is what I think you're talking about here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's not easy to change habit pattern. 
you know, if we think about the, if you've learned a song in the wrong tune, or if you've learned a, a mantra in Sanskrit and you're mispronouncing one of the words, it's so hard to change. It's almost better that we come as a blank slate, but unfortunately, most of us, by the time we come to yoga, we have, you know, years and decades of habit patterning in the minds. I love the word that you're using is disrupt because it can't be changed until there's been a break. And that, that's a great way to think about it. Mm -hmm. So if yoga is asking us to change our life, how has it changed yours? Well, there's it's a constant evolution, I think. But I would say that the biggest change that the yoga practice has led me to is an experience of being at peace with myself. That was something I didn't have before this practice and this journey. I was always searching outside myself for the answers, you know, and then through the practice, I've, I've been able to find that peace within myself. And that includes, you know, being able to feel comfortable in my body, being able to find good qualities within about myself and recognize those and not be afraid of the, you know, the, the not too good qualities and let those in as well. And to be a better person in my relationships and how I show up in the world, how I speak to people. And at the same time to open my mind and my heart to the idea that every being has a bridge, you could say, has the potential to awaken, to experience divinity, grace, God within themselves, and as I've experienced within myself through the benefit of the practice. Now we're gonna take a quick break from our chat with Kino to give a shout out to our show partners. Shambhala Publications is the proud publisher of our book, Living the Sutras, A Guide to Yoga Wisdom Beyond the Mat, as well as Kino's books, including the Power of Ashtanga Yoga, The Yogi Assignment, and the Ashtanga Yoga Practice Cards. As a listener of our show, you get 30% off your purchase with the code TAPAS30 at Shambhala.com. That's T-A-P-A-S 30, all caps on TAPAS. Support for Living It is also brought to you by Alchemy Forever, a clean and clinical skincare line developed by Switzerland's top dermatologist. The products are anti-aging, paraben-free, gluten-free, cruelty-free, and ideal for all skin types. Use the code SUTRA20, all caps again, to get 20% off your Alchemy Forever products on alchemy-forever.com. And now, back to our conversation with Kino. Do you find that because you have such a big social media presence that it challenges how you accept yourself and how you see yourself? Or do you think you've gone beyond that by now? Well, there was definitely times where it's been difficult to be so public on social media, to have um, everything that I do be under kind of a microscope and to have, you know, each individual phrase that I would use to write a post or a blog or something in my books or something that I've said be really, really picked apart and be under heightened scrutiny. And, and it's been difficult because sometimes, you know, I have that tendency that many human beings have that the, which is what's called in sort of psychology negativity bias. Whereas if there are 10 positive things and one negative thing, you remember the negative thing. 
And so I've had to work with that a lot and just really kind of like not discount the negative, but recognize that, you know, if someone is, is coming on to your, your, your social media page to, to, to hate and uh, to hate on you. And then that hate is very personal and specific. It's, it's because they're triggered, doesn't have anything to do with you. And if someone is offering constructive criticism, it has a different feel. If someone's not, if someone's intention is to point out, you know, a, a place where you may be, um, you know, uneducated and in order to, to help educate you, it's, it's often very different than someone who's just there to tear you down. So I've had to be very clear in, in terms of really seeing, uh, trying to decipher okay, what this person's intention, it may, cause maybe I could take it personally that that's actually not, you know, if I read that without any sort of tone, they're just helping me see something I didn't see about myself, about my statement, something like that. Okay, I thank them for bringing that up to me, and I'm willing to change. But then, if someone's, and you know, sometimes I get some really awful things that are really kind of personal and mean spirited and just um, hateful, and I just ignore those completely. I no longer even, I no longer listen to them or even feel that they they are worthy of a response. I just completely ignore them. Mm-hmm. Like the locks and the keys in the sutras, right? The the fourth. The fourth key is just disregard for something that is that greatly bad. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Do you struggle at all with the pull of social media while we're talking about discipline? Well, you know, what's interesting is um, or this over the last year, I've maybe a little less than a year, I've done two, two Vipassana meditation retreats and I haven't done them in a while. And the first one, and you know, I've, if you do the Vipassana retreats, they're all donation based and they're silent Meditation retreats. Mm-hmm. So, and you check your mobile devices in and there's no reading material. So it's complete vow of noble silence. There's no journaling. There's no writing. There's no listening to music. There's no reading. There's no Instagram, YouTube. There's no videos. It's just you and your mind sitting. And so it's been interesting because after coming back after these two courses, I'm just not that interest. I'm not as interested as I was in social media. Mm-hmm. And I'm finding it hard. I'm finding it hard to generate um, interest, you know. And um, I don't know if that's going to be so good for my, you know, future in terms of marketing my message and whatnot. But that's just gen- genuinely where I am. Is I'm just not not as interested in it. And I'm I'm sitting with that. I'm, and again, I'm just letting myself be there. And okay, so that's that's what it is. And and that's okay now. Maybe I'll go through another period where I was interested in it. I know that I I felt a bit burned. Before I went into the meditation retreats, I felt like, you know, I'd, I'd been very public and very vocal about some things that didn't really end in the way that I'd imagined that they would all end up. And I, I um, you know, I was still somehow online and I guess I, I guess I, 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 I guess I did feel a bit maybe trapped, um, you know, by needing to be online. And after these retreats, I feel a bit free and I just haven't really found the new groove yet, I guess. And maybe this is the new groove. Maybe you don't have to be yeah. so excited about it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, unfor- unfortunately, you know, the way that these the, these social media companies have set things up, it's, you know, the this algorithms, they, they, they prioritize people that are really active and engaged and, and, and in their world and in their universe a little bit. And I'm like, well, I don't know if I really want to be in that universe as much anymore. So it's so interesting because your last book came out of 
um, yeah. part of your social media account too, which I would. Oh, and I'm so grateful for that. I am so, so grateful for that. Right. That'd be a huge positive. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about the yoga assignment and how that came to be since we're on it. Mm, well, the yoga assignment uh, actually came again. I, I was, I was, I remember that I was, was when these stories started to be really popular on social media. And I was sitting there thinking like, what, like people are not interested in me that I'm brushing my teeth. So I felt like, well, I'm, I identify as a yoga teacher. And I thought, well, teachers give assignments. And I remember saying that, I don't know what to say, but I'm a yoga teacher. So how about I give you an assignment? That's what teachers do. So I'll give you a yogi assignment. And I remember giving kind of the first yogi assignment was, I think maybe beginner's mind or one of the first was beginner's mind. And, and the beginner mind is something really beautiful to have. And I strive to have a beginner mind and to sit in that not knowing space as much as possible. And then, and then how can that transform every interaction that you have? And then the one that, that really inspired me to create, to create more than to take this off of social media and turn it into a book project was when I did a yogi assignment on forgiveness. And this was something that was really, really powerful because I, you know, wrote about forgiveness and I, I gave people a few different prompts. You could either forgive yourself or you could forgive someone in your life or you could ask for forgiveness. And the, and I asked people, you know, if they didn't want to share about it in their own posts, I asked them to share about it like with me and send me messages. And I was so moved by the stories of people that they were sharing with me about forgiveness. You know, I, I, I got a message from a, a mom who said she was mad at her daughter for years. And she, as a result of that Instagram post, decided to call her daughter that she hadn't spoken to in, she said, I think it was more than 10 years and say that she'd wow. forgiven her. And I, I just, I was, and I was moved to tears by these messages. And I thought, well, this is really, really powerful. And it seemed like there was this gap in discussions about yoga. And the gap was how do we take those lessons that we learn on the mat and apply those into making our lives qualitatively better? How do we take a concept like forgiveness, which is really important in the spiritual path, a concept like beginner's mind and, and apply that into our life. So that's kind of where the beginning of that book really started to take place. And I intend to make it into a video course eventually as well that would include practice, discussion and journaling. And I'm working on that. It's fantastic. Kelly and I are, as I don't know if you know, are familiar with our book, but we're journaling junkies. If we can check ourselves into that category, because <laughs> it's like you said, it is so powerful to be able to respond to something with some specific prompt that requires that break or that thing to arise to the surface and be investigated. Was you, when you were writing it, did you write your chapters in order or did you kind of get your 31? concepts and thoughts and then figure out based upon your experience, oh, forgiveness should come, you know, we can handle that on day 10 or on day 15, or how did you come up with your order? Was that specific? What I usually do when I'm working on a new book project is I write kind of, I do like a big brainstorm and I kind of write all the ideas that I have, you know? Um, and so that's what I did with the yogi assignment was I wrote down like everything that I thought could possibly be a yogi assignment. And, so, and then it was just like, I just like let it all go. So every possible lesson, you know, vulnerability, open heartedness, self love, you know, authenticity, truthfulness, all of the traditional, you know, all of the traditional yoga lessons like compassion, peace, you know, breathing, tapas, abhyasa, practice, non attachment, just write them all down. And then I ended up with like, you know, more than a hundred. <laughs> Like, uh, easily. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I started grouping them. 
So then I was like, okay, well, you know, breathing, bandha, nervous system. Okay. And then I would like group these things all together. And then it was like vulnerability, opening your heart. Oh, that's kind of, I could probably group those things. So I mm -hmm. started to make clusters mm -hmm. of, of kind of lessons. Um, and then from there, I started whittling them down, whittling them down. And then I, I kind of, I whittled them down to like the top, I think like 30, 35, something like that. And then once I had those down with all their little subsets of what I wanted to include in the chapters, then I started to organize them. And then I'd organize them in a way so that you could start from the first, you could start from the first day, the first lesson and work your way through and kind of have a transformative experience. Or you could also open up to any lesson and let that stand independently. I love that. That's actually exactly what we did with Living the Sutras. So, and we went through and did the exercises and some of them we really struggled with and some of them, you know, came much easier. So when you were doing your yogi assignment, did you follow all of the assignments and was there one that you had a harder time with than another? Oh, I think they're all a little bit hard, you know, and, and that's kind of the essence of the, of the, the spiritual journey, you know? I think that the, the th every day is its own challenge, right? And I, I think we're constantly, constantly asked moment to moment to pull out those lessons when they're appropriate, you know? Like vulnerability is, is, is difficult when you have a lot at stake, right? And, and then vulnerability is easy when you feel really safe and you're in the presence of people who you feel really, you know, comfortable around. So I, I feel, I feel I'm like constantly challenged moment to moment to apply all of the lessons. And I don't think any one of them are easy. And that, that I think is a testament to both how powerful and how difficult the, you know, the practice of yoga really is. I love this idea of a video series and it sounds, I mean, I don't know how you do it. You're managing book projects and Om stars and the yoga center. So well, how do you do it? How do you how do you manage your time? Well, first of all, I have an amazing team, and I think that without the team that makes Omstars as powerful and as impactful as it is, I wouldn't I wouldn't be here today. And the same thing with Miami Life Center. You know, there's an amazing team of teachers. My husband is intimately involved. He's kind of the director of the yoga center and is really in charge of all of the you know operations and overseeing everything there. And if it weren't for this amazing team, the businesses and the communities really that support the businesses wouldn't be there. If it weren't for the students that show up every day and put their blood, sweat and tears on the mat, whether they're practicing with me or our amazing team of teachers on Omstars, whether they're practicing with me, my husband or our awesome team of teachers at Miami Life Center. It's the students and their commitment that really make all of the magic happen. You know, in terms of myself, like I feel that it's very important as, as a human being and as a like a business owner, nobody sets my schedule. So if, if I don't, if I don't remain committed, organized, disciplined, if I procrastinate, if I, you know, if I don't do things, then they don't get done. So I budget my time as much as possible. And at the same time, I, 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 my part of my discipline is also to kind of create cutoffs so that I don't check my emails like right before bed. You know, I, I make a cutoff and I'm like, okay, I'm going to get up in the morning and I'm not going to look at my phone. You know, I use, I use a meditation timer on my phone. So I'm like, I'm just going to get up in the morning and work with the quality of my thoughts. And I'm going to have a cup of tea directly after I drink the tea. As soon as the tea is finished, I'm getting on my meditation cushion and I sit on my meditation cushion. After that, I'm going to immediately get on my mat and I'm just kind of really disciplined with myself as much as I can be. And I, you know, I get distracted here and there, you know, like the, like, like we all do. 
Yeah, exactly. And then, and then after that, I'm like, okay, well now, you know, now either I'm going to teach now, or now I can take a shower and put in some work on a writing project that I'm working on, or put in some work and do some kind of, you know, big picture planning, you know, with OMSTARS. So where we are right now with OMSTARS is really exciting because we now, uh, you know, we started off with as a kind of bootstrapped online channel that was kind of hatched as a dream and shared with really excited, excited members of my community online with just like a couple hundred videos and very limited teachers, basically just me and my friend Carrie, who started the channel with me. Um, and then now over two years later, we are, you know, over 2000 classes and over a hundred different teachers. And we're starting to really develop out our lifestyle content. So we have more storytelling as well as a, a really good depth of both the yoga and the yoga wisdom traditions or of the learning that you can do along the path. So it's really, really exciting to see how far OMSTARS has come in this short period of time. And I'm just so excited for what we what we're working on next. We recently added live streaming, and this is really cool because now you know we have live streams, and then we have the replays, so we can watch the replays on on the channel, which is amazing. We're in the process of working on and developing an app because we're right now we're only a desktop application, but maybe by the end of this year, then that will start to come into fruition, and and that's really really exciting. Congratulations on that speed. That's a, that's really fantastic. Well, and when you, you and when you've got something like two thousand, you know, a number like that. When we, as you know, when we're branding something or if we have an idea for something, you gotta then you gotta get your direction even sharper and clearer. So, is there a, an overarching message or statement that OMSTARS is about or wants to make, or that maybe it's even you, Kino, that like if I have one mission right now in the way that I have power in my exposure and I can get this message across, it's this. Well, for, for OMSTARS, what we do is we believe in making the tools of traditional practice accessible for mm -hmm. everyone. Mm -hmm. And, and this is what's so amazing about, about having the videos online and being able to do more than just offer classes that you would just drop in on is that we can tell the story of yoga. And, and that allows us to tell the story of yoga from the perspective of different body sizes, different ages, different levels of ableism. And this is kind of amazing because traditionally, if we look at yoga, um, even within India, it was practiced by a small subset of society. We look at the mainstream yoga in, you know, the Western culture, the United States, Eurocentric culture, these sorts of things. And what you'll see is that it's like one standardized image of a young, perpetually young, fit, able-bodied, kind of very often white, you know, female, mm -hmm. privileged, uh, you know, image. And what we can do with OMSARS is we can lift up many different voices, many different body types, create and show, or, or, or you know, show the natural diversity of the human population. And, and then take traditional tools. So all of the tools and practice that have been from many years of study with the, you know, with all of these ancient traditions within India, and then show how those are made accessible to every person on this planet, whether you are Muslim and you're practicing in Indonesia, whether you're 
evangelical Christian and you're practicing in Alabama, whether, you know, whether you're Buddhist and you're practicing in Thailand, whether, you know, you don't identify with any spirituality and you're practicing in Denmark, like OMSARS is there for you. And regardless of what age you are, you know, whether you're a senior citizen and you feel like going to a class is intimidating, well, there's someone there for you that you can identify with on our mm. channel or, or you're young and you're new to the practice and you're like, wow, I just want to start. Well, you know, we're there with you in each step of the journey. So, and I, I, I really, really love that. And again, we are, we're like our next project, our next mission is to go more into storytelling and to ask this question of how can we do more storytelling about the depth work of the journey of yoga? And, and I'm, I'm really, really excited about that. And I just, I just can't wait to see, you know, how, how it's all going to unfold and how it's all going to take shape. And for myself personally, like what I talked about in the beginning where I feel like I'm in this space of not knowing is I feel like in many ways, I feel myself in the midst of a transition where I'm not entirely sure of what it is or what the form is that my teaching is going to take in the future. But I know somehow that it's about creating the space for people to have similar experiences to what I've had in the depths of my own inner searching. So I'm not exactly sure what form that's going to take. I'm still teaching yoga classes. And, you know, if you come to a class with me, um, we're probably going to kind of jump back and do all those uh, normal things, at least for now. But I can sense that there's a potentiality that is there to facilitate some sort of, of transformation of some sort of transcendental space that's, that, 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 that hasn't yet made itself clear. I think that's really interesting. And I, I think it can be very hard to just sit patiently and kind of wait for the understanding of what that change or that transformation should be. It can be unsettling. So how do you stay grounded while you're figuring out the next change, the next transformation? Well, it, you're right. It's unsettling. It feels scary. It feels like, you know, a leap of blind faith into an abyss, you know? And, uh, I continue to do my practice. I, I continue to do my sitting practice, my yoga practice, and, and, and I look for small signs, you know, that are pointing me in the right direction. And I feel that, I feel that, you know, I'm getting just enough of, of sort of confirmation moment to moment. Um, and, 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 and I also, I look for the feeling, you know? So if, um, if I starting down a train and then I, and then the signs that are coming up are all of those signs of, you know, being triggered or being unhappy or feeling boxed in, then I'm like, you know, I think that this is not, this is probably not the direction. If I notice myself trying to control the outcome, manipulate the outcome, it's probably not the right direction. <laughs> let me, let me just again return to myself and back to the, you know, back to the basics of the practice, the breath, my body, and see what wants to happen, you know? I found that I have to pay attention to when things feel easy. I, I didn't grow up in the sort of Midwestern culture where you didn't always work hard, <laughs> you know? And so I've always been in, in the past, maybe less, the, maybe more in the last five years, able to kind of pull back and let things come a little bit more and find that if it should happen, it sh there should be some flow to it. And when I, and I know when I do that, things manifest better than I could have imagined rather than me trying to be like, well, if I just work a little harder, if I just try a little differently, and that sometimes it's really like, I think Krishna says it to Arjuna in the Gita, like your nature, you know, your nature is, it should be easy. We're not supposed to go against this sense of ease of who we are. 
It is. A, it's a difficult thing to compare that with tapas, right? So yes, then we're like, that's right. well, so how do we work with this? Cause I, I feel, and this is something that we, that, that, that is about embracing seemingly contradictory thoughts as the wholeness that we are. So we are, we both need discipline and we need flow. So it's like, if we're, if we, there's this classic example of, um, the, the pitfalls of visualization and affirmations, right? So here you are and you're in your house and you're like, yes, I believe that I can create my universe. And you decide you want to be, you know, heavyweight boxing champion of the world. <laughs> so you close your eyes and you visualize it and you write out your affirmations every day. And then what do you do the rest of the day? Well, you lie there you know, and you're just visualizing and there's no, there's no practice and there's and no it's action. Like, it's, mm-hmm. it's never going to happen. So then there's the other end of the spectrum where the person is not visualizing, is not open to it, but there's practicing, 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 practicing. And you know, and then they're like at war with themselves over the practice. And then, and then what we're advised to do in the traditional, you know, yoga sutras explain, you know, this is abhyasa and vairagya, the balance between practice and non-attachment or, you know, practice and flow. So, 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 so we get this kind of effort, surrender balance, and, and we're asked to maintain that. So if you have more tendency to effort, 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 then look for flow. If you have a tendency to be a little bit lazy and just kind of wait for things to arrive on their own, then try to do a little bit of effort. It will really help. So then this way we can become, you know, whole and balanced. The whole idea of moderation in tapas, right? You don't want to turn up the heat so far that you burn something, but you want to, or scald it maybe would be the better word. So, Kino, we've got one last question for you. The, the subtitle of Living the Sutras is A Guide to Yoga Wisdom Beyond the Mat. And what we wanted to do was make it really tangible and personal for people. So share with us what off-the-mat practice really helps you stay disciplined with your overall practice. What practice helps you maintain tapas in your life right now and i would imagine this changes moment to moment you know right now one of the things that i am constantly working on is simplicity of expression so here's and and it's uncomfortable i'll explain a little bit what i mean by that is This is a a very sort of harmless and um, kind of dumb example, but it's extremely useful. So I I was driving, and um, if you've ever been to, you know, South Florida, we're not uh, world famous for the best drivers. So we often (laughs) we often have people that that don't take traffic rules as rules, but as mild suggestions, including pedestrians. So I'm driving, and and then suddenly there's a, a man that steps in front of the car and. He's not in an intersection and, you know, I've got to stop. I'm not going to hit the pedestrian. And then, and then he stops and he holds his hand out and then he sort of, you know, sashays very slowly across the street. (laughs) And, you know, and I, and I felt myself being annoyed, you know, and I, I was immediately went into the habit pattern of this guy has got to be, you know, just not a nice person. This guy's not cool. He's just, he's a jerk, you know, and I started to like rehash all of that in my mind. And then I was like, wait a minute, you actually have no idea if he's a jerk. You just, you were reacting to that. What was it? And so I just, I paused for a moment and then I thought, okay, let me tune in. There was a bodily sensation that was coming up. And then after the bodily sensation passed, then there was a very clear statement. When this man stopped in the middle of the intersection and held out his hand and moved very slowly across, you know, the, the street, I felt dis, I felt disrespected. 
you know? And, and it was the disrespect that was actually the issue for me. I have no idea. For all I know, he could have been doing that because he needed to go across the street to take his sick mother down to the hospital. We have, I have no idea. You know, he could have been doing that because he has a broken foot and he, he's really good at hiding it. No idea. You know, any number of circumstances could have happened. Of course, there is also the alternative that the guy's just entitled and he wants to walk whatever he wants to walk. But, you know, do we know the, do I know the answer? Absolutely not. You know, so the, the, the essence for me was without making it personal, without, you know, turning what I felt was my own disrespect into a, a personal attack on a stranger and a value judgment of someone's moral character. The only thing that's real is I can say quite clearly when this happened, when this man walked in the street and stopped the car, I felt disrespected, period. Yeah. End of story. And, and that like that, like that whole process it being able to recognize that I was triggered, pause, not react, get to the basis of what the trigger was about for me. It's such intense, introspective work that requires all of the discipline of yoga. Stop, tune into your breath, focus on the posture. How's it arising? Get to the root of it. What's going on? Okay, what's the root of it? Without the habit pattern, without the emotion, it's just this. Here's that. Okay, so you have a thing. And what I noticed actually after that one instance is that I have a thing about disrespect. You know, it's a, something that's a trigger for me. If I feel that I'm being, you know, if I feel disrespected in a certain situation or that, that someone's, then I often, uh, I will often get triggered. And especially when I feel that the disrespect is related to my gender as a, as a woman, then it's, it's extremely triggering. And so it's just, it is an interesting thing to watch. And, and that's kind of like, that's very, present for me now it's happened recently and and so i think these little things come up like this all the time but, but I, I guess the essence of it is you know here you are and you're going through your stuff and 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 that is the practice do exactly what you would do in your life if you were on the mat which is to breathe through it and recognize the posture yeah keep feeling sensations mm-hmm Feel the sensations of sensations. Don't believe that they're true. Don't react to them. Don't make them worse. Observe them. Where's the epicenter of the pain? You know, how do you respond to the pain? <laughs> All that stuff. Kino, thank you so much. This was fantastic. Let our listeners know where can they find you if they want to take class with you or just read your book, all of those things. What's the best way to stay in touch? You can find me you know, on Instagram at Kino Yoga. And then if you want to find me in person, my full schedule is on KinoYoga.com. I'm leading some intensive courses, like some one-week courses in Miami at Miami Life Center. Whenever I'm teaching in Miami, I'll always be at Miami Life Center. That's MiamiLifeCenter.com. And you can always practice with me online on my channel OMSTARS, which is OMSTARS, O-M-S-T-A-R-S.com. And I do a live class almost once a week. So that's also pretty fun to join. Thank you. Thank you so much so much. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Living It. For those of you who want to find out about Kino and where she's teaching, visit KinoYoga.com. You can find links to this as well as more information about the resources we discussed in this episode in the show notes or at our website, livingitpodcast.com. For those of you interested in deepening your practice while also enjoying the sun and sea, Amy is leading her annual retreat in Mexico December 1st through the 8th. Visit tantramadison.com for more information. For those of you who can't escape to the beach, I'm leading an online course on the sutras this fall. Send me an email at 
kelly at livingitpodcast.com to learn more. And remember, listeners get 30% off Living the Sutras and Kino's books at shambhala.com with the code TAPAS30. Thank you so much for tuning in. We really love doing this. Please share the podcast with your friends. Message us on Instagram at Kelly DiNardo and at Amy Pierce Hayden. Email us through our website, livingitpodcast.com. Subscribe in iTunes. Write a review. We love doing this and really appreciate your help in keeping the podcast going. Thanks for listening.